on a 140-foot sailing ship. For days, you've seen nothing but cerulean sky and navy blue sea. The water around you is four kilometers deep. Then one day, you see a tiny green speck on the horizon. As you approach it, the speck resolves into a small island with white sand beaches and stands of green shrubs and a narrow cut that leads into a lagoon of the most amazing shades of turquoise that you can imagine. This island, Canton Atoll, is part of the Phoenix Islands Protected Area, or PIPA, one of the largest marine protected areas in the world, covering 157,626 square miles, just shy of the size of California. The Phoenix Islands are part of the Republic of Kiribati, a nation of 33 islands spread across the equatorial Pacific in three island chains. The total land area of Kiribati is smaller than Cape Cod, with a mean height above sea level of just six feet, yet it has an ocean territory the size of Argentina. Canton is the only inhabited island out of the eight inside Pippa. There are about 30 people living on Canton, comprised of a handful of government employees who are charged with managing Pippa, and the family members that have accompanied them to this outpost at the end of the world. A warm and open people that laugh easily and sing beautifully, the citizens of Kiribati are poised to be the first climate change refugees as sea level rise threatens to decrease their already short supply of dry land. In an ocean nation like Kiribati, it is impossible to ignore the influence of the sea on human civilization but in reality, we are all dependent on the oceans for survival and prosperity, and the benefits we reap from the ocean are being threatened by climate change. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Sit and Listen. Sit and Listen is a production of Harvard University's Science in the News, a graduate student organization that's committed to opening the lines of communication and encouraging discourse between scientists and everyone else. Today we have the immense pleasure of partnering with Academic Ventures at the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study. Academic Ventures brings together scholars from across Harvard and around the world in order to foster multidisciplinary collaborations that lead to new ideas, innovative research, and our general advancement of knowledge. A match made in heaven for Sit and Listen. We're also coming to you again with a live audience today from the collection of historical scientific instruments at Harvard University at the Radio Contact Special Exhibition, a very apt venue open to all through December 9th, 2016, featuring some wonderful historic radio and broadcasting equipment. This episode is in conjunction with Radcliffe Institute's Science Symposium on Oceans. The oceans cover 70% of our planet, but did you know that less than 5% of the ocean floor has been explored? In the face of rapid climate change, ocean scientists are racing to understand what makes a healthy ocean and how rapid changes in ocean temperature, currents, and chemistry will affect biodiversity, fishing, tourism, land erosion, and a myriad of other aspects that will affect us on land. My name is Vinny. I'm one of the producers of Sit and Listen. I'll be moderating today's conversation with our brilliant guests who are all PhD students in a joint program between MIT and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. I'll let them take you on their journey. Hi, I'm Hannah Rivera. I'm a marine biologist studying coral genetics and the responses of corals to climate change. 
Hi, I'm Gabriella Farfan. I'm a marine chemist studying coral skeletal mineralogy and chemistry. And I'm Christina Hernandez. I'm also a marine biologist, but I study larval fish and fish population dynamics. So let's dive in and get a little background on all these words that we just mentioned and the things that we hear in the news, like what is climate change? Why is it important to study oceans in this context? And what aspect are you studying that can give us valuable insights? All right, so let's start with the concept of biodiversity. Areas of high biodiversity, such as rainforests and coral reefs, tend to get a lot of attention from scientists and the media. Biodiversity is a measure of variation in the living organisms within a population or ecosystem. Usually, it refers to the number of species that are present. So a forest with lots of species of trees, birds, insects, and mammals is very diverse, while an agricultural field with just one species of corn is not very diverse. Ecological studies have shown that ecosystems with low diversity are very sensitive to change. So let's think about a classic example from the kelp forests off the coast of California. When the system's in balance, the kelp grows, sea urchins eat some of the kelp, and sea otters eat some of the sea urchins. However, on islands where sea otters are absent or removed, the sea urchin population grows very fast, and they eat every last scrap of kelp. If, instead, there were two predators for sea urchins, then the ecosystem would be more stable, even if there are changes in the number of sea otters, right? Because the other predator continues to eat the urchins, even when there are fewer sea otters there. In the context of coral reefs, it has been shown that herbivorous fish are important to the health of the reef, because they eat the large algae that might otherwise displace and grow over the coral. If there's just one species of herbivorous fish, even if that species is super abundant, something could happen to it, like a disease, and then the algae may be able to gain a foothold and do a lot of damage to the health of the reef. If instead there are smaller numbers of a whole bunch of species, then changes in the number of one of those species has less impact on the total number of herbivorous fish that are present on that reef. In both of these examples, the critical thing is the ability of different species to fill the same role or niche, to act as the resource or the consumer for multiple other members of the ecosystem. When we have substitutes, we have more stability. In another context, biodiversity can also refer to the level of genetic variation that's present within an ecosystem or a population, such as having humans, one species, from all around the world living in New York City. This genetic diversity is super important because it is the raw material that enables adaptation and evolution, which might be critical for the future of species such as corals in the face of climate change. That other buzzword mentioned, climate change, is a very broad term that covers a range of impacts that are seen to be changing rapidly on a global scale, such as warmer average temperatures, rising sea levels and melting ice, ocean acidification, more frequent and severe storms, changes in rainfall, and many other things. These impacts are driven by increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, like carbon dioxide and methane. These gases act like a blanket around our planet and trap more and more heat, leading to changes in the balance between incoming solar radiation and outgoing heat from the Earth. The balance of incoming and outgoing energy, as well as the patterns of where the energy lands on Earth, are what drive the circulation of the oceans and the atmosphere and cause weather. What's important to understand is that 
the atmosphere and the ocean are intrinsically linked. So changes in the atmosphere's temperature, weather, and chemistry are reflected in the ocean and vice versa. The reason the ocean plays such a huge role in climate is because the ocean is just massive. It covers 70% of our planet, and water has a very, very high heat capacity, which means that it has the ability to take up and store a lot of heat. Thus, it acts like a giant thermostat for the planet, keeping the global temperature relatively stable. Relatively stable conditions over the past several millennia have enabled plants, animals, and humans to grow and adapt in their respective homes. As more greenhouse gases are being rapidly added to the atmosphere, the Earth is trying to reach a new balance and the conditions can shift worldwide. This can make a previously comfortable environment inhospitable to the plant and animal species that live there, including us. Some of these species may be able to physically move to seek out appropriate conditions again, but many organisms can't move, and neither can entire ecosystems, such as coral reefs or old growth forests, which represent hundreds to thousands of years of fine-tuned adaptation to their locations. If we look back through the fossil record, we see massive extinctions and shifts in the distribution of organisms associated with past changes in climate, even in the case when those changes in climate happen much more slowly than what we're experiencing right now. Besides the long-term changes to climate, there are also shorter cycles, often referred to as decadal or subdecadal variability. These are on the range of several years to several decade shifts between states that cycle back and forth. These kinds of oscillations are often the result of coupled oceanic and atmospheric um, interplays. And they can have very long, complex names like the Atlantic Meridiano Oscillation, or one that you might be more familiar with is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which I'll talk about more later. Now, the way these oscillations are measured and described is through the anomalies that they create. And by anomalies, I mean conditions that are much higher or much lower than the average. And it can be an anomaly in reference to temperature, pressure, winds, et cetera, and often a combination of these. Now, these anomalies become really important for organisms and ecosystems, especially when we layer them on top of a changing average climate. Because as average conditions get higher, the value of that anomaly on the new mean is even more extreme than it used to be, even if the magnitude of that anomaly stays the same, which is not necessarily the case. To help you visualize this, imagine you're trying to see how high you can jump. So you jump and you make a mark on the wall. And then you jump again, but this time you step up on a stair. And you keep doing that. So every time you're jumping, you're making a new mark. And even if you're jumping the same amount, the mark that you make as you climb up the stairs is going to keep getting higher and higher. So if you imagine that those marks on the walls were temperature, you can see how a temperature graph might look through time with these oscillations imposed on top with a rising mean represented by the height of the staircase and higher anomalies represented by your tick mark on the wall. Now, if you're an organism living in a place where you're feeling these anomalies, maybe you might have been able to cope with the rising mean, right, the level of the stairs. But when you add these anomalies on top, it can really go past the threshold of what organisms can handle. In the case of corals, for instance, the El Nino Southern Oscillations lends to really big temperature anomalies in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. During an El Nino phase, the temperatures there can get extremely hot for a long period of time, on the scale of several months to even a year or two. This kind of fast stress layered on top of the changing mean temperature easily crosses the thermal thresholds of even the toughest corals that we know. 
and certainly what the majority of the coral species can handle. So you're probably wondering, why study all of this? Why should we even care? Like, sure, nerdy scientists like that stuff, but what about the rest of us? Why should we care? Even if you don't live near the coast, the ocean has an immense impact on your life. It houses countless tiny organisms and algae that make the planet habitable for us by producing oxygen. It keeps temperatures milder by absorbing heat and storing it for long periods of time. It shuttles water from one part of the planet to the next and plays a role in modulating rainfall and storms worldwide. And it provides an incredible array of resources from the fish on your dinner plate to seaweed and ice cream or personal care products to the rare earth minerals that end up in your electronics. As we've alluded to, ocean conditions are changing at an alarming rate. For instance, the ocean is estimated to have absorbed about 90% of the heat that has been released from fossil fuel burning, which is making the ocean warmer. This seriously disrupts the health of many organisms that are used to living at cooler temperatures. Furthermore, the increasing CO2 in the atmosphere is also absorbed into the ocean and shifts the ocean's chemistry to make it more acidic. This is called ocean acidification, and it is caused when CO2 transforms into carbonic acid when it is dissolved in water. Overall, this disrupts the balance between the three main ions in the ocean which contain carbon. These are carbonic acid, bicarbonate, and carbonate. Now, carbonate is the main ingredient in calcium carbonate, which is what many organisms, like corals, use to make their skeletons. Under normal conditions, these three ions act as a buffer to one another to keep the pH of the ocean relatively constant. But when you add too much CO2, this buffer begins to break down, and the pH of the ocean will shift such that carbonate will become rarer in the ocean, and thus organisms will begin to struggle to make healthy skeletons. You may be familiar with this particular carbonate buffer, if you've ever taken a Tum or an acid reducer because your stomach was too acidic and upset, you're adding carbonate to your stomach and doing essentially the opposite of what atmospheric CO2 does to the ocean. Finally, climate change has also been linked to extreme weather. If you've been following the news recently, you've probably noticed how more hurricanes and flooding across the coasts have let, led to a lot of destruction in coastal communities. And these are all reasons for why we need to do a better job of studying the ocean and how its changes will affect us in the near future and in the next generations. Changes in the ocean also affect the organisms that live in them, like fish, corals, and phytoplankton, which can produce as much as 50% of the oxygen you may have just inhaled in your last breath, as well as many important ecosystems that we depend on for food, tourism, drug discovery, coastal protection from some of these severe storms, and many other services. What happens in our oceans doesn't just affect the coast either. The role of the oceans in climate has worldwide impacts, and the resources we harvest from the ocean are consumed by even the most landlocked countries. In our remaining time, we hope to share with you more on how the ocean is affected by climate change, how these impacts affect us, and how the different aspects of what we study can help us understand what's at stake. Thanks, ladies, for the really wonderful introduction to climate change. Um, I'm curious now to hear a little bit more about what you've been working on to further our understanding of oceans and climate change. So can you all tell me a little bit about what you do and what you study? Of course. In general, I study the genetics of corals, and in particular, the corals that build reefs. 
I'm most interested in figuring out if these corals will be able to adapt to and tolerate the environmental changes that we expect to see over the next several decades. Now, it's been over 180 years since Darwin developed the idea of evolution by natural selection. The idea that traits that allow an organism to survive and reproduce more quickly and ably would be passed down from generation to generation. Naturally, environmental conditions play a very strong role in deciding what traits are advantageous. For example, if you live in a very hot, dry environment, the ability to better retain water would be critical to keep you from dehydrating. Hence why plants like cacti can store water and have thick cuticles, can prevent desiccation, and thrive in deserts where water is very scarce. Now, if you've evolved over a long time to be well-suited to certain conditions, what happens when those conditions change very quickly? Can you cope? It could even be that the range of your responses, what scientists call plasticity, is wide enough that you're already equipped to deal with this change on some level. Or if it's not, can you adapt and evolve fast enough to survive? These are the questions that I think about in terms of corals. The ability to adapt to a new environment is going to be crucial for corals and all organisms that are trying to keep up with the unprecedented rate of environmental changes we're seeing today. Let me deviate for a second just to explain what I mean by adaptation because it has a very precise scientific meaning that is not necessarily the same when used in regular conversation. Adaptation in the common sense of the word, as in you'll just get used to it, is actually referred to as acclimatization by biologists. You can acclimatize to a change when that change is gradual and not very severe overall. For instance, if you move to a higher altitude, your body acclimatizes to the lower oxygen by producing more red blood cells to compensate. And then perhaps after, after some time, you can move to an even higher altitude and be able to do the same process over again. If you went from living at near sea level in Boston to living at the top of Mount Everest without any transition period or training, you would very likely die quickly because your body would not be able to tolerate nor be prepared for those conditions. Adaptation, as I'm using it, refers to a longer process, a multi-generation selection of traits that are better suited to an environment. It's an evolutionary process that's driven by natural selection. Many of the changes in temperatures, pH, nutrients, and other conditions will create stress for organisms. This stress can act as a very strong force of selection depending on how severe it is. Whether organisms can adapt to tolerate these stresses in the long term or whether they can at least acclimatize to some of the changes in the short term will determine the fate of many of our planet's vibrant ecosystems, such as coral reefs, which are what I study in this modern evolutionary context. To study corals from this genetic standpoint, I use two main approaches. One approach is to look at the connectivity between different reefs which means figuring out how related different reefs are to each other and create a, a map of this genetic network between reefs. These networks reflect the dispersal history of corals. For instance, where does a coral baby that's born in one reef end up? Does it stay in the same reef or does it travel several hundreds or thousands of kilometers to a nearby reef? Understanding these networks can help us predict how a region may recover if a large portion of a reef dies and help us answer questions like, where will the new corals that might replenish this reef come from? Has the parent reef also been affected or is it still healthy? And does the parent reef have stronger corals that could make the recovering reef stronger in the long term? The second approach I use to study corals is to look at those that already live in a fairly extreme environment and try to find clues in their genetic makeup that might tell us how they're able to tolerate conditions that may otherwise kill other corals. For instance, do they have specific genes or mutations that help them survive in hotter temperatures or more acidic conditions? 
or do they appear genetically similar to other corals that live in milder conditions, suggesting that this is a range of conditions to which a coral can acclimatize to. The goal of my work is to both identify the strongest reefs and the reefs that are most connected to strong reefs. Since a weaker reef connected to a stronger reef has a chance of being reseeded by a strong reef that can send its larvae in that direction. In understanding all of this, we can begin to predict how corals might respond to additional stress in the near future and also how to best protect the reefs that are most vulnerable. Protecting reefs and ensuring their survival into the future will, ben will benefit all of us from helping our tropical coastal cities stay protected from storm surge to giving food security to the millions of people around the world that rely on coral reef fish as a primary source of protein. So Handy studies corals in an evolutionary context, kind of like putting together a little family tree of corals in the ocean, in a sense. But uh, you guys talked about the skeleton of corals earlier on. So the skeleton also contains a wealth of information about their health. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I also study corals, but from the perspective of an ocean chemist and a mineralogist. I care about how the chemistry of the ocean is changing, in particular how ocean acidification and rising ocean temperatures will affect the skeletons of corals and the cycling of nutrients that are crucial for organisms in coral reefs. Now this matters because coral skeletons make up the architecture of coral reefs, much like how trees make up the architecture of a forest. Unfortunately, little is known about how coral skeletons will be affected by climate change. Biologists have done some experiments on baby corals, trying to grow them under ocean conditions predicted for the year 2100. And they've observed that these baby corals became highly stressed and made measly looking skeletons, which can lead to death. I hope that my background can add to the story by detailing the actual crystal structure and the chemistry of these skeletons. This should aid in understanding the mechanisms behind biomineralization, which is how corals make their skeletons, much like how we make our skeletons, and how external factors which affect coral health are preserved in the skeletons. Because coral skeletons grow a lot like tree rings, geologists use them as records of the past, assuming that they reflect the ocean conditions very accurately. Thus, I'm also interested in how biolimiting trace metals like iron and zinc are cycled in reef environments and how the cycling and incorporation into coral tissues and skeletons, specifically, are changing due to climate change and anthropogenic pollution. Essentially, all of us here today care about protecting coral reefs because one, they're in immediate danger from climate change, and two, coral reefs are considered to be the rainforests of the sea and that they are hotspots for biodiversity in the ocean and they serve as nurseries for fish and other organisms. Not to mention, they also provide coastal protection to many coastal cities and islands and serve as a source of fish for many nations in the Indo-Pacific. So speaking of fish, <laughs> Chrissy, I, I guess you're also a marine biologist, but you do some very different work from Hanny. Can you tell us a little bit about the other side of things? Right, so I study fish, specifically larval fish, AKA fish babies. I'm really interested in how processes that occur during the early life stages of fish can influence their population dynamics, and then how we can use this information to set effective management policies. In case, like most people, you've never heard of larval fish, I'll give a little background. Most fish have a two-part life cycle, like how frogs start out as tadpoles, Butterflies start out as caterpillars. 
Although adult fish often live in close association with the bottom, particularly reef fish, such as a clownfish that lives in one anemone on one coral reef for their entire adult life, most species release their eggs into the water column. Those eggs are carried away from the reef and hatch into larvae that are millimeters in length. Super, super tiny. These larvae have very limited swimming ability, so they're at the mercy of the currents as they begin to feed and grow. Eventually, after a period of days to months, they find a suitable habitat on the bottom and settle. Some, such as the bluehead wrasse, actually bury themselves in the sand and go through a metamorphosis, to bring us back to that butterfly analogy. The patterns of where these larvae end up due to the ocean currents is called dispersal, and it's an important consideration in designing marine protected areas. We want to protect areas of reef that can act as sources of larvae to many other reefs downstream of them. So this area of my research is similar to the connectivity that Hanny studies, but I come at it from a different angle. Rather than looking at the DNA of adult fish, I look at the distribution of larval fish in the open ocean and then use computer simulations to try to predict the dispersal and connectivity of different populations. The management implications of this work are twofold. First, we need to understand the dynamics of these populations in order to sustainably harvest them. And second, we want to optimize the design of marine protected areas in order to encourage healthy, vibrant, stable ecosystems. Fish are very important to the health of reefs, not only because they contribute to the community and the biodiversity of the reef in ways that we've already talked about, that biodiversity is really important to the stability of the ecosystem, but also there are significant feedbacks, which we've also mentioned already, whereby herbivorous fish prevent the spread of algae that might otherwise displace coral. So how do you guys actually study all of these things? Uh, what kinds of tools and techniques that do you guys use as oceanographers? And do you actually like go into the water and sample these things? How do you do it? OK, so I spend one to two months per year on ships collecting samples and observing the ocean from above. I think it's super fun, but working at sea can also be really difficult at times. Imagine trying to do lab work, like pipetting tiny volumes or looking through a microscope while you're on a ship that's rocking back and forth. My work requires plankton sampling, which is done by towing a net at a variety of depths. For example, I spent several weeks this summer sampling plankton in the Phoenix Islands protected area with the goal of studying tuna larvae. We would send our small mesh net down to 50 meters of water depth, and then when the sample comes on deck, we use several sieves and tweezers to separate out the larger organisms, like jellyfish and shrimp, before we preserve the sample. Later, we look at this sample under the microscope, and it's full of tiny snails and shrimp and lots of these crustaceans that are called copepods, and we find the fish larvae. From a sample that fills a pint jar, we might expect to find 50 fish larvae. So this work requires a lot of patience. So as a marine biologist and a coral biologist especially, I spend a lot of my time underwater uh, scuba diving. And I'm incredibly grateful to have been able to visit some of the most remote, pristine reefs on the planet to conduct my field work. Uh, for instance, PIPA, the protected area we mentioned in the intro and which Chrissy has also been to, is one of my field, my field sites. And preparing for field work in such remote places requires a lot of foresight and planning, and it's, it's always like a big, um, big event planning for any expedition like this. Because when you're half a hemisphere away from any major landmass or hardware store, you can't just run over and buy another hammer or set of 
zip ties or whatever it is that you might have forgotten to pack. But once we make it out to the reef with all our perfectly packed and planned gear, uh, we usually load up a small boat with all the scuba gear, instruments, and any other tools that we might need, and then we dive in. Now underwater, the first thing that we usually do is find a home for our suite of instruments so that they don't get knocked around in the surge. And these instruments are usually pretty large and heavy and we find a nice little crack in a rock to put them in and then we tie them down so that they don't float or sink away. And the instrument package measures things like temperature, currents, lights, and oxygen and anything else that we might be interested in. And once those are secure, we start swimming around and looking for the corals that we might want to sample. Most of the work that I do is on very large, uh, what are called massive corals, which can grow to be the size of this table or even larger, as big as a small Volkswagen even. Now, I do a couple of different kinds of sampling, which varies from actually drilling coral cores underwater, which will require a drill and a drill bit and sometimes extension rods if we're getting really long uh, cores and that work requires a lot of scuba tanks because we power them with the compressed air. The sampling that I need to do for my genetic analysis is much simpler and I usually only need a little chisel or hammer and a, uh, a bunch of Ziploc bags essentially and I just chip away a tiny bit of tissue from the coral about the size of a fingernail, label it, and I can bring that back up to the surface. And while we're doing all of this work, we have to carefully position ourselves so as to not harm any other organisms like other corals around us. Reefs are often very complex, so you don't want to be knocking things over. And in the most exciting dives, we may stop to pose for a quick photo with some of the friendly reef sharks. Um, sometimes the snappers also jump in. But after one of these expeditions is completed and we pack up all the gear and ship it back home and fly back, uh, the rest of my work happens in lab, where I often spend months extracting DNA from samples, processing the DNA, and then analyzing all the data that I get back. So while many oceanographers go out to sea to collect samples and take measurements in the field, and it's all very, very exciting, uh, my work mostly takes pl place in the lab once the samples come back, and I depend on oceanographers like Hanny to bring back Samples. There are many state-of-the-art techniques from other scientific fields that can be applied to analyze the unique samples that come back from these ocean expeditions. For example, I use advanced synchrotron radiation techniques on coral samples collected under a suite of different conditions, like corals grown under elevated temperatures or carbonate undersaturated conditions. For those of you who have not heard the words synchrotron radiation before, that's a very fancy way of saying very high-powered x-rays that are created at a national lab. They are 10,000 billion times brighter than the x-rays used by your doctor to see if you have a broken bone. Synchrotron x-ray source is like a food processor in that you can add many different attachments to the source of x-rays to accomplish different experiments or measurements. For example, on one x-ray beamline, I know that beamline sounds like something right out of Star Trek. I use a method called X-ray fluorescence to map out the distributions of biologically relevant trace metals like zinc and iron in the tissues and skeletons of corals. And the resolution of these maps is on the order of five microns, which is smaller than the area, uh, which is an area smaller than the diameter of a strand of hair. These detailed maps can give us insight into how metals could be cycled in coral reef environments. Now, on a separate beam line, I use X-ray absorption spectroscopy to determine how crystal the crystal structure of coral skeletons on an atomic scale. 
This method allows me to see how a changing ocean environment is reflected in coral skeletons, atom by atom. One really important data stream that a lot of us use, but maybe isn't as exciting as field or lab work, is remote sensing. Satellites, moorings, and land-based radar can all provide information such as ocean color, temperature, and wave action. This data can be used in combination with our field data. For example, the El Nino index is calculated using remotely sensed sea surface temperature, and then we can compare field-based data on ocean productivity, like how much biomass did I find in my net, to, and compare that to this index to test hypotheses about the impacts of El Nino on ocean biology. Remotely sensed data also feeds into hydrodynamic models, which are a valuable tool for improving our understanding of the ocean and the climate system. Each data stream is limited in space and time. For example, satellite data can only tell us about the surface ocean, and then my field data can only tell us about the specific sampling location on the specific date when I visited it. Hydrodynamic models combine real data as boundary conditions with the physics that govern how the ocean and atmosphere move. These models then allow us to interpolate and extrapolate the data that we can collect to draw conclusions about other locations and times or about the system as a whole. They're also super useful for testing hypotheses. For example, I use a model that couples hydrodynamics and biological processes to simulate the dispersal of larval fish in the Caribbean Ocean. I can give these simulated larvae different behaviors and then test how those behaviors might influence the places that they end up. So it sounds like you guys all work um, on coral reefs to some degree, and a bunch of us have heard this term called coral bleaching before. Can you tell us what it actually is and how it's affecting the reefs? Sure. So bleaching is actually an extremely important uh, phenomenon for coral reefs, and in my opinion, it's, it's probably the biggest threat to corals currently. Now, corals of the kind that build reefs are complex organisms, and they're made of hundreds of little small polyps, which look very much like an upside-down jellyfish. And all of these are grouped together to form the massive colony that you might see if you watch Planet Earth or Finding Nemo. Um, now, inside these polyps are tiny microscopic photosynthetic algae that essentially provide food for the coral. Now, what happens is that as water temperatures get warmer, the algae inside the polyps essentially become like an overheated engine that starts malfunctioning and releasing all sorts of damaging chemicals. And so this causes the coral to freak out in a way and expel them from the tissue. Now, since the color of the corals mostly comes from the pigments in this algae, when the corals release the algae, they're left looking rather pale or white because their skeleton, which is made from cal calcium carbonate, essentially looks like bone. It's white. So that's where the term coral bleaching comes from, the white skeleton that you can see in the corals without the algae. Now, the algae were essentially a sugar factory for the corals. They provided them with food in exchange for shelter and some nutrients. When these algae are gone, the coral is essentially put on a very severe diet, and so it begins to starve. And corals can feed from the water column, but they're not very efficient feeders compared to the kind of IV of sugars that they had from the algae. And the longer these temperatures remain hot, the longer the coral remains on this starved uh, state. And as we all know, if we don't eat for long enough, we can eventually die. So if temperatures begin to cool off before the coral has eaten through all its reserves, then the coral can take up new algae and begin to grow again, and the system restabilizes. You might have seen a lot of news articles this year about coral bleaching in El Nino. El Nino, as I mentioned briefly before, is one of the states of the El Nino, El Nino Southern Oscillation, the other state being La Nina. 
The way that El Nino plays into all of this is that El Nino conditions make the oceans very hot, especially in the eastern and central Pacific. Now, this current El Nino has lasted a long time. It started at the end of 2014, and it's essentially still going on. So it's been one of the longest and hottest in the last several decades. Now, this has led to bleaching in many regions across the world. And because it's lasted so long, there's already, there's already been massive mortality. So mortality more than 50 or 60 or even 90% in certain reefs. Widespread coral bleaching like this makes the future of reefs look somewhat grim because it's essentially wiping out large swaths of reef uh, that took hundreds and even thousands of years to grow. In order for reefs to recover from an event like this, they'll need to have a decently long stretch of normal conditions so that the corals that are left behind can grow and any new corals that might be coming in can grow in a nice environment. Now, unfortunately, those nice conditions are becoming harder and harder to come by because climate change is also making things warmer on average. However, it's not impossible for a reef to recover from a mass bleaching event. And so to end on a more positive note, We'd like to end the podcast with a quick update on the corals of Canton Lagoon that we mentioned in our intro. For years, this lagoon has been the focus of ongoing research into the health and resilience of coral reefs. Following a severe El Nino event in 2002, major bleaching occurred in the lagoon. In November and December of 2004, the Planetary Coral Reef Foundation performed surveys that estimated coral mortality in the lagoon to be nearly 100%. Dives by researchers from the New England Aquarium in 2009 and 2012 showed little improvement. And in 2015, another severe El Nino event that Hanny just mentioned hit the region. Luckily, through a partnership between the Sea Education Association, the New England Aquarium, and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, divers and snorkelers visited Canton Atoll in November 2015 and again in July 2016 and collected data on coral health. The results have been far more positive than was expected, with reefs exhibiting good conditions in the face of the stresses recently encountered. Just to note, this doesn't mean that there was zero bleaching, um, but that the status of Canton Lagoon is much better than was expected in light of the news of widespread and catastrophic bleaching around the world. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, declared a global coral bleaching event in 2015. So it was expected that corals would be dying across the world. And overall, the Canton reefs show impressive signs of recovery since the catastrophic bleaching event that that, re that, that area experienced in 2002. This serves to provide an impetus to keep exploring an ocean that constantly surprises us and also provides hope that, if properly protected, some ecosystems may be able to adapt to the stresses of a human-inhabited world. So we hope to have convinced you tonight that studying such a broad topic like climate change takes a team of scientists with very different perspectives to begin to understand and predict how climate change will affect our future. If you care to learn more about climate change, especially how it affects our oceans, we recommend that you visit the NOAA website, that's N-O-A-A, and the HUI website, that's W-H-O-I, or any other university websites of research groups that study the ocean. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Sit and Listen. We'd like to thank our collaborators at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, as well as the Collection of Historical Scientific Instruments for hosting our podcast recording with a live audience. For show notes and more from Sit and Listen, 
please visit sitnboston.com. Sit and Listen is generously funded by the COOP of Harvard and MIT, the Graduate Student Council, and the Provost Fund for Student Collaboration at Harvard University. We're digging deep with our next few episodes, which include our very own coverage of the March for Science and more topics at the intersection of science and society, including climate change and urban planning, as well as the perceived reproducibility crisis in science. Thanks again for tuning in. Feel free to send us feedback or topic requests at sitnpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and check out our written content on the blog by following SITN on social media. Until next time. Thank you.